Welcome to Medical Matters. This is a podcast created by two medical students where we discuss all kinds of interesting topics in healthcare and medicine while bringing on expert guests such as yourself to share their perspectives and stories. So I'm Kendall. And I'm Sunil. And we are first year students at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. And our second episode today is about the world of assisted reproductive technology, abbreviated as ART, and its role in treating infertility and fertility preservation. So today we have the honor of having Dr. Bedient with us. Dr. Bedient, thank you for joining us. So a little background. Dr. Bedient is a dual board certified fertility doctor in both obstetrics and gynecology, as well as reproductive endocrinology and infertility. She has advanced training in minimally invasive robotic and laparoscopic surgery, which I'm super excited to hear about. <laughs> also part of the wonderful team at the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, where thousands of patients from all over the world come to see Dr. Bedient to receive fertility treatment, as well as the amazing care that she truly gives. So thank you again, Dr. Bedient, for joining us. We're really lucky to have you today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I am very appreciative and uh, it's always a pleasure to, to spread more knowledge, more information about this topic that affects so, so many people. And oftentimes nobody's thought about it until they have to think about it. So it is absolutely my pleasure. Right. So we're just going to get started with some questions that we have set up for you. The first one is, can you start out by telling us a little bit about the in vitro fertilization process, commonly known as IVF, from start to finish for couples who are having difficulty conceiving? Sure. So for couples who are difficult, having difficulty conceiving, when they make it to my office as uh, a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist, REI is the shorthand for that. Um, so not to be confused with REI, the store where you do all sorts of outdoorsy thing like scaling walls, um, we're, we're focusing on all the reproductive aspect of it. But when a couple comes in, we typically get all the testing first. And so we're looking at all the components that you need in order to get pregnant. So for couples, it is looking at uterus tubes, ovaries, and sperm. So semen analysis for the guys, egg count by ultrasound, and we get some uh, blood work to, to see how the brain and the ovaries are communicating with each other. And we check tubes to see if they're open. And we also check the inside of the uterus to make sure that it's well behaved. And we want to make sure that there's no no polyps, no fibroids, nothing in there that's going to interfere with the ability of a pregnancy to implant and grow. So that's the baseline testing that we get. Then once we sit down and talk and go through that, if we decide that IVF or in vitro fertilization is the right step, then, then we start down that pathway. So that pathway has a couple of steps to it. And the first step is making the embryos. And it's having the woman go through an egg retrieval. So for that, we give her medications every day for about two weeks. And those medications are designed to mimic the body's hormones and really give a big boost to the number of eggs that are growing. And it's an important thing to, to realize what the difference is, what we can and can't accomplish with this, because I'll have women who come in who have a, a low number of eggs available and, and they'll ask me, oh, can we have, you know, I thought your medications can make us have double, triple the number of that. And 
what we are able to do with our medications is take advantage of what is there and support it rather than make something new. So I'm fully aware that we live in Las Vegas and there's magicians all over the place here, but I can take advantage of what's new. I can't make something appear out of thin air. Um, and that's an important distinction. So it's two weeks of medications. And at the end of it, after doing lots of ultrasounds and blood work to monitor, we have the woman take a trigger shot. And then we do a retrieval, which is a procedure under anesthesia. So she's really comfortable. And um, she gets the best mimosas of her life through that IV. And then once she's asleep, we go in with an ultrasound with a special needle on the end and pick up those eggs. Um, and then all the embryology starts. So we create the embryos and, um, and then work to prepare the lining of the uterus and transfer. Typically in our clinic, we're just transferring one at a time because my goal is to, to have a healthy baby at the end of this, um, not, not a basketball team. So mm -hmm. hence the one embryo at a time, not multiple. That's amazing. Assisted reproductive technology is such a novel new territory, I think, relative to the realm of medicine. But with its novelty, I think there's been some barriers in the American healthcare system, namely IVF treatment for infertile couples isn't often covered by insurance is what I, as far as I understand, which means that a lot of couples end up having to pay tremendous amounts of costs out of pocket, mm -hmm. which is something that unfortunately not everyone can afford. So to this end, could you speak to the access or lack thereof that Americans have to reproductive medicine? Sure. So with, within reproductive medicine, um, insurance plans typically fall into a couple of different categories. So some insurance plans cover absolutely everything. Some cover absolutely nothing. And then there's the, the shades of in-between. And the shades of in-between tend to fall in the insurance company saying, well, we're going to cover the testing that you need, but not actual treatment. Or they'll say, we'll cover the testing. We will cover preliminary, like basic treatments like insemination. Although oftentimes we find they'll say, oh yeah, we'll cover insemination, but they won't cover the medications or they won't cover the ultrasound monitoring that we use to make the inseminations more effective and more importantly, safer. Um, and so that's, that's very frustrating. Um, and, and then they, the same insurance plans won't cover any IVF at all, or they'll say, we'll cover six cycles of IVF, uh, six cycles of IUI, that's intrauterine insemination, where we just put the sperm in higher. So it's closer to where it needs to go. Um, and then they might cover some IVF or sometimes they'll say, you know, you have X number of dollars to apply to your infertility treatment. Once it's gone, it's gone. But one thing that is uh, that we have found is that oftentimes the insurance payments don't actually cover the cost of doing the treatment for the clinic. And, and that makes it a real double-edged sword because to get to be able to run an effective clinic that's on, on the cutting edge and really doing what, what its patients want us to do, which is the most effective treatment, um, there's not, not coverage. And so when patients have minimal or no insurance coverage, it, it does, it gets very costly very quickly. 
And the goal is to be working with someone who can really tell you, these are what your chances are. And, and a lot of people, when they come in, they say, oh, I want to do IVF because it's the most effective. And I'm, I'm 100% likely guaranteed to get a baby. So I'll go through this once and, and then it'll be good. And with biology, with medicine, nothing's 100%. And, and so it, it's a, a very stressful thing for patients as they're going through and trying to find the means by which just to get through and, and cover the cost of the treatment, which any one treatment cycle has so many people's hands in it that uh, that's part of the reason why it's so expensive. I mean, any one treatment cycle has the physician has ultrasonographers and uh, phlebotomists and the people running the labs. You've got the OR staff for doing the retrieval. So you have to have a circulator and a scrub. You need to have embryology staff available because they, they work seven days a week. Um, when they've got embryos growing, they're there one way or the other. And so it's a really, it's a challenging thing to balance. Okay. How do we cover what we need to cover and make it as accessible to the patient as possible? Fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just really interesting to think about, uh, you know, we have all these new technologies, you know, coming about, um, how do we make them inclusive, uh, to as, as broad a segment as possible of the population. Um, and you know, that, that being said on that note, I wanted to, I wanted to bring up and switch gears a little bit, uh, towards the new technology that I've been reading about, um, increasingly. So, um, it, it could be a new frontier, um, who, who actually knows it's called ectogenesis, uh, or artificial wombs. Um, not necessarily sure if that's uh, your realm of expertise or if it's anyone's for that matter. Um, but I just want to kind of get your thoughts on, on, you know, what you think of it. Uh, if you believe it to be viable, um, ethical, um, inevitable. I don't know that I think it's inevitable um, because there is a, there's, despite the fact that we do so much science with, everything that we work with, um, with just the science of the embryology and the, the culture media and doing genetic testing, all those things. I mean, it's, it is one of the fields of medicine that everybody is constantly trying to innovate and come up with what the next thing is. Um, but everyone is also very mindful of the humanity involved in it as well, because when patients are going through treatment, it's more, how do we, it's not just how do we do the science? It's how do we take care of the, the humanity of the patients as well? And when you introduce an artificial womb, that takes some of that away. And so I think that there's going to be huge regulatory issues and barriers that are thrown up in front of it. Um, before it can become mainstream. Um, I think that there is a lot that needs to happen because when you're talking about an artificial womb, it's one thing to think about, all right, how can we replicate this in the lab for the first six days or so when conception happens and you've got the egg and the sperm that come together and, and they need to, um, you know, start growing the embryo, but it's very different when you're talking about implantation, because there is so much about the physiology of pregnancy that we don't know. We don't even know how labor starts. We don't know what, what kicks that off. 
you know, the placenta is a full organ in and of itself that has a, a huge list of things that it needs to do. And so I, I don't know that that ectogenesis or artificial wombs will be commonplace in my career. Um, you know, I think it, I think it takes away some of the humanity. Many couples already feel a range of emotions because they are having to go through this. And so when you take away, it is one thing to say, you have to use an egg donor or the conception has to happen outside your body. And then we're going to put the embryo in and it's going to grow. It is something completely different to say, we're going to get your eggs. And then in nine months, we'll see you with the baby. Um, that's, that is a hugely different thing to, to talk about and things like uterine transplants, I think may become more common, but, but true artificial wombs, I think have a ways to go. Oh yeah. For the uterine transplant on that subject, I think last year or 2019, I forgot it's already 2021. 2019 <laughs> was the first, uh, the first woman I think gave birth with a uterine transplant in the U S which was amazing. Mm -hmm accomplishment for us here yeah the the asrm so the american society of reproductive medicine that's the the society that is um overarching in you know in all of our scientific conferences and the year that that happened they had brought the the physician scientist who had pioneered that as a keynote speaker and i mean the standing ovation was huge just the technology involved in it is phenomenal um, and, but there's, there's a lot of pitfalls to it too. I mean, you're, you're asking an otherwise healthy woman to receive a transplanted organ from someone else. And, and that is not without risks. Um, and some of the early cases have, have not been easy to get through. I mean, there have been quite a few just, challenges that have come up and post-op infections and, you know, rejection and failure to take. And so it's not, it's not plug and play by any stretch of the imagination. Like, it's not like you get a uterus and you just say, all right, we're going to just transfer it into this other woman. Um, there's, there's quite a bit to it. And you have to look at the balance of healthcare dollars because while IVF is expensive, it is nothing compared to the surgical costs of going through a transplant. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, it makes, it makes total sense. I think, uh, you know, the risks, the risks of any surgical operation are going to be immensely higher. And so it could be a technology that, um, you know, maybe does become more widespread in the future if those risks can be mitigated. Um, for, for the, for the sake of the, of the viewing audience, would you mind actually breaking down what a uterine transplant entails? Um, like where we, where we get that, uterus from, um, the, the risks that are involved, uh, potential benefits, uh, as opposed to other technologies. Mm -hmm. Sure. So in looking at uterine transplants, and this is something where, um, the, the Cleveland clinic, which is where I trained for my residency, some of my colleagues there have pioneered the, the uterine transplant in the United States. Um, they also have done it in, uh, I believe Texas, I want to say Baylor is, is one of the locations where they have done that. So there's only a couple places within the United States. Um, but when they have done those uterine transplants, there's two, two ways that they can source the uterus. One is from a live person. The other is from a cadaver. 
you know, obviously if you're using a live person, that woman has to consent to not just a hysterectomy where we take out the uterus, but it's a much longer procedure because in a normal hysterectomy, uh, you know, good practice gynecologist can go in and in a patient who's uncomplicated, it's, you place your clamps appropriately and it's a, a relatively quick procedure. Um, with a transplant, it's a different story. I mean, it's not just a hysterectomy because they have to preserve all of the vasculature and, and pay attention to every little cut that they're making. And so the time that they spend cleaning up the uterus in terms of, okay, let's separate it from the surrounding tissue. Let's identify the vessels. Let's leave enough um, length on those vessels, you know, you start to get really into the realm of, of transplant surgery, which is a, a separate surgical fellowship after a lot of the general surgery um, fellowships. And it's a, it's a whole other world of skills. So right there, you're talking about people taking the, the physicians involved, having to have quite a bit more training, quite a bit more skill. So when you do that surgery, whether it's on a live patient who is donating, or if it's from a cadaver donation, they go through and they do a much longer hysterectomy because they're preserving the blood supply and the vasculature. And then you bring in the patient and before the patient can ever get to the stage of uterine transplant, at least at this point, she has to have embryos made. She has to have been a good candidate for IVF and embryo transplantation before they'll ever do this. So she has to have already gone through egg retrieval, ovarian stimulation, and the creation of those embryos, you know, oftentimes with genetically normal embryos being tested so that they know they have something to work with. Because the last thing you want to do is go to all this trouble of a, a uterine transplant and then not have anything to transfer to it during, during the IVF um, process. So she has to have already created embryos. Once she creates those embryos, then she can go through the transplant process and she's got to be well screened at this point, especially because it's such a comparatively rare procedure. Um, she needs to be healthy and, and have a high chance of success. I mean, this is not something where they're taking just anybody who comes along and then they do the transfer um, and they do the transplant. And then after that, they will give her medications to, to help the uterus uh, thicken up the lining like you would during a normal transfer and they do the embryo transfer. Um, I believe it's C-sections only for delivery. Like there's no vaginal delivery in these, um, at least from what I have heard so far. I could be wrong about that, but... Um, do you know but, why that might be the case? So like I said, we don't know what causes the onset of labor. And when you're talking about just basic labor and delivery, the amount of exercise that the uterus goes through is pretty sufficient. So you not only have an organ that is normally the size of your fist that is expanded to the size of a watermelon, but it is, it's running a marathon, the entirety of labor. I mean, those, those muscles are contracting against each other, trying to evict their occupant out into the world. And, and so when you have regular spontaneous labor, there's always the possibility that you're going to have, have to turn to a C-section because kid misbehaves and the heart rate drops 
or the kid's too big to fit through the pelvis well and and something happens or you know there's heavy bleeding or something like that the last person you want to do a crash c-section on is someone who has had major pelvic surgery and especially when that pelvic surgery focuses on the organ that is currently housing and protecting a baby um it's not that's not the person you want to crash and when I think back to, I don't do deliveries anymore because infertility docs, um, typically we, we give our patients back when they're about 10 weeks pregnant. Um, so it's been several years since I've done a C-section, but you know, I, I remember times as a, a trainee where we were in and out, uh, into the uterus with baby out within 60 to 90 seconds of the patient hitting the table. I mean, speed is of the essence when it's a baby on the line. And when you're worried about, oh my gosh, this woman has been through hell and high water to get her to have this uterus, you wanna make calm, calculated decisions. You don't wanna be moving quickly. And and OBs are really well suited to do those kind of surgeries quickly. Um, I mean, if you've got trainees who can do it really quite well, and, and then you add into that, physicians who've been practicing for many years. I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward to do, but when you're adding in the complication of scar tissue and vasculature, that's, that's looking different, you want, you want to be more careful about all that. So you don't jeopardize the uterus that everybody works so hard to get into play. Um, And, and the hope is that the woman then has however many children she wants. And after the after she is done with childbearing, she has a hysterectomy so that she's not keeping a, a foreign organ for a prolonged period of time. Gotcha. So what could, um, in terms of uterine transplantation, uh, what would you see as being the biggest uh, potential or present successes uh, of the technology? I, I was reading somewhere that um, it could potentially increase the percentage of live births. So it decreased the percentage of miscarriages, um, potentially improving implantation. Um, um, I was just wondering if you could speak more to that. Sure. So right now, the primary patients who are receiving uterine transplants are patients who have congenital abnormalities where they are not born with the uterus. And so it, that has been the primary patient population. Now, if the procedure were to expand and be adopted as commonplace, then I could see expanding it to people who have not just an absent uterus, but um, severe malformations of it, like a bicornuate uterus or a unicornuate uterus or, or any of the other iterations of abnormalities that make it very difficult, if not impossible, to, to bear a child on one's own. Problem with miscarriages in general is that there are about 40, 50% of them with people who have multiple miscarriages, or we never find out the exact reason why they're having the miscarriage. And so when we're doing an evaluation on someone who's got a miscarriage, we're looking at, okay, does she have any uterine abnormalities? Are there any genetic abnormalities? Are there any um, uh, blood clotting disorders that could potentially cause a problem? And for a uterine abnormality, okay, you can make the case that a uterine transplant is the way to go. For a genetic abnormality, you would never do it. For a thrombophilia, meaning an, an abnormality in the clotting structure that leads to loss of pregnancies early, you would never do that because 
the baseline problem is still going to exist no matter where the uterus is. Um, if you have someone who has Asherman syndrome, for example, where there's significant scar tissue that pretty much glues the side of the walls of the uterus together. So there's really no normal space for an embryo to implant. You know, you can make a, a case that a uterine transplant would be worthwhile in that patient. But um, I think it is a, I think it's a stretch to say that this is a panacea to fix implantation because it is a lot to go through just to get an implantation. And, and right now we rely more on surrogacy, um, gestational carriers is the, the official term for it. Um, and that, that has the problem of it is very expensive and time consuming, but it has the advantage of the risks tend to be lower because before someone can go through surrogacy, they, they have to have had their own children. They have to have made it through safely. And so it's, there's a lot of ethical discussions around it of what's the best use of healthcare dollars of safety that you're willing to expose um, the patient to what risks and, and the amount of effort that goes into a uterine transplant and surgical times and post-op care and, and all of those things. Oh, definitely. Speaking of healthcare dollars and costs in general, how would you say that these resources, um, not just uterine transplant, but also IVF or even just oocyte, sperm, cryopreservation, how can we make these more inclusive to the general public and so that they can premiate beyond just those with a little bit more money to give to these types of procedures? That I don't have a good answer for. I mean, you would have to you would have to include it in the realm of normal for insurance, but there is a, and this is a, this is a whole different podcast in itself, but um, when you're talking about the finances of medicine, um, a lot of people blame physicians. They say, Oh, you get paid too much. Oh, you don't get enough. But when you look at the actual billing sheet, the next time you go to a doctor, you'll see, okay, the physician billed X number of dollars, but the insurance company is paying a fraction of that. And, and that is something that is, uh, that's really challenging when you have a high expense type entity like IVF. I mean, you have to have the lab, you have to have the embryology, you have to have the media, you have to have the surgical suite, you have to have the uh, medication access. That's all pharmaceutical companies. Um, you have to have the labs. That's a separate set of companies. Like there's, there's a big disconnect in, in how, um, in how the financial component of it works. And so while one answer is, oh, insurance could cover, should cover everything that doesn't necessarily make for good medicine um, because it doesn't allow for nearly as much of the innovation. And so it creates a dichotomy of the people who can pay for it go to a place with really high success rates that are on top of their game. And the people who have to rely solely on insurance are, are not at those places. And so it's, um, it's a really, it's a very tough thing to do. I mean, one of your, one of your future podcast episodes, if you're interested in the, the economics of, of medicine, you know, could focus on the beginning of 
Medicare and how I believe it started or um, yeah, Medicare, I believe it started in Texas as a, as a courtesy of, oh, well, we're going to take care of patients who are older and we'll give you a cut rate for that. And then all of a sudden Medicare became the insurance standard. And so all these doctors are like, wait a minute, we were doing this to help these older patients who otherwise have a fixed income. And as a result, we are now finding it harder to, to make ends meet. And that's part of the reason why when you go to the doctor, you see them for five minutes and then they leave because they, they have to see that many patients to make it work. And that's, that's not why most of us went to medicine. We went into medicine to take care of people, not to be rushed through by an insurance company or, or a bean counter who said, you have to do this. Um, and you have to see 12 patients an hour in order to make ends meet. Right. Yeah. Insurance companies can be pretty turbulent. And I know that some states, they do actually provide insurance coverage for these ART procedures, but Nevada, unfortunately, isn't one of them yet. Um, mm -hmm. To that end, I've actually been working with Susan G. Komen and American Cancer Society to push for a bill that will hopefully be passed this 2021 legislative session for insurance coverage for fertility preservation for cancer patients such as myself who had gone through the procedures that you've discussed. So Nevada's making progress, hopefully, in that direction very soon. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's a hard, it's a hard thing to balance. It's a really hard thing to balance. Yeah. Um so just switch uh, switching gears a little bit, uh, I want to talk a bit more about the the technology behind IVF. So mm -hmm. Uh, oftentimes, those embryos will undergo pre-implantation genetic testing um, mm -hmm. before, uh, prior to implantation. So pre-implantation, um, that, that's to identify genetic problems like genetic or chromosomal abnorm abnormalities, um, other genetic disorders like sickle cell anemia, um, Huntington's disease, um, the genes for cystic fibrosis. Um, so I just wanted to find out, like, what are your thoughts on the eventual expansion uh, of you know, this sort of uh, embryonic testing? And then like what direction might that one day take? Like, could it be used to say, detect more complex uh, multigenic diseases? Sure. So when we're doing genetic testing on the embryo, it's designated a couple different ways. One is PGTA, that stands for pre-implantation genetic testing aneuploidy. And that's versus PGTM, which is looking for mutations or SR, which is uh, structural rearrangements. And so each of those things looks for something different. Probably the most common among these is PGTA, looking for aneuploidy, because everybody needs 46 chromosomes, no more, no less. When you have more or when you have fewer, there's just not as many, uh, the, the success rate goes down, the body just isn't meant to tolerate too much or too little genetic tissue uh, and information. And so PGTA looks for the presence or absence of those 46 chromosomes. That's different than PGTM or PGTSR, for example. So when you're talking about a couple that both carry a gene for cystic fibrosis, for example, so um, genes are different than chromosomes. Genes are a very tiny fraction of the size of a chromosome, and you can have hundreds of thousands of genes um, that, that work to make a person a person. And in order to utilize that testing, you need to know what you're working with because unlike a blood sample that you get when you go to the doctor and they're looking at you know, whatever it is that they're looking at, 
we really only have four to five cells to work with when you're working with an embryo because it is somewhere between 150 and 300 cells when you've got a blastocyst. Um, and so you, you can't really take a huge amount. I mean, it's better than what it used to be where we would take one, one or two cells out of eight in a cleavage stage embryo. But with blastocysts, you've got a couple hundred cells and you take four or five of them and you need to know exactly what you're looking for. So right now the technology is not advanced to the extent that you can say, check for absolutely everything in this one embryo. You have to narrow it down. So you can't do a panel of 300 diseases. You got to know this couple, mom and dad carries the genes for cystic fibrosis. And that's what we're looking for. Cause we know that dad carries this specific iteration and mom carries this specific iteration. And so that's what we're looking for. And it's, it's looking for a needle in a haystack when you've already done the x-ray to know where in the haystack you're looking as opposed to just blindly going through. So those, those type of genetic testing, um, methodologies on embryos have to be combined with some testing before IVF in order to know what you're looking for. Now, when you're talking about designer babies, which is usually where this conversation starts going, then you start to introduce technology like CRISPR. And that is the technology where they can go in and do gene editing. And I don't know if you guys remember, this was a year, maybe two years ago. Um, probably two years ago now, because a year ago, we were just at the beginning of the pandemic and this occurred before that. But there was a, uh, a Chinese scientist who edited um, some embryos so that they did not have the receptor that made HIV possible. And so protected these two baby girls who were twins from ever getting HIV. And and so that type of gene editing is already here. It's not legal really anywhere right now. And there's still a huge amount of ethical discussions that have to be held about it that have to, that people have to evaluate because with multigenic genetic disorders, things like diabetes or schizophrenia, we don't have all the information. So it's not like I can go in and say, oh, your embryo number one has XYZ genes, but embryo number two has ABC gene. And so this one's going to get schizophrenia and this one's going to get diabetes and this one's going to get high blood pressure. And, and right now it's not like we can identify those and either change them or omit them. There's just, there's too many genes involved and it's the combination of nature. So the genes that are there and nurture the environment that they're growing up in. Um, and and so right now, there's not that ability to, to make designer babies. You know, we can, we can avoid some of the big nasty diseases that we can find, but you can't fine tune a, oh, I want a blonde haired, blue eyed, six foot little girl who looks like a Victoria's Secret model with the skill of an Olympic athlete who's going to ultimately make it into Harvard and MIT. Um, that that just isn't there. You know, I think over the course of my career, we're going to see more of those discussions, but a lot of those things depend on what, what the target genes are. And there's so many complex interactions that right now we just don't have a handle on, on really which ones you would have to alter to get a true designer baby. And, and frankly, I don't really want them 
to know that, you know, I'm, I'm good with preventing major disease, but, um, but going in and say, Oh, I, I want a six foot tall, blonde haired, blue eyed kid who can do all these amazing things. I, I don't know, natural, natural selection and genetic, um, diversity are, are wonderful things. Um, and they lead to, they lead to even more amazing things. And so I'm, I'm not real crazy about that part of it, but I do think that the discussions are coming. Yeah. I think genetic testing coupled with embryology makes for a very unique intersection as far as what future direction holds on that end. Yeah. There's a huge amount of ethics that that go into what we do and, and self-regulation and monitoring. And um, it's a, it's the field is a good intersection between medicine, basic science, bioethics, psychology, and in the combination of how all those things intersect with each other. That's beautiful. I mean, on, on that note, like I, you know, I really um, do appreciate you know taking the time out to um, to have this discussion with us. I have uh, so many. I know we have so many more questions that we would love to ask you. Um, I guess in the interest of time, uh, we just wanted to um, close off with, with maybe one final question, which is, um, do you feel the emphasis on, on ethics is, is to, to some extent enough, considering, you know, the kind of the vast frontiers that reproductive medicine is expanding into? I think there's pretty robust discussions about the ethics that happen on a daily basis. And, and you see them in the offices, you see them just between patients and, and their physicians between the physicians. I mean, we have, we have regular discussions between my partners and I of we have this patient, this is what's going on. Should we do this? And there's lots of discussions of where does patient autonomy begin and end and just because you can, should you? And, and we see a ton of that. And so in terms of greater regulation for it and having more discussions, I think there's, I think there's a lot more discussion going on than people recognize because it happens every time you counsel a patient. And every time you say, okay, do we want to do IVF? Do we want to do IUI? Do you want to walk away? Do you want to go adopt? Do you want to be childless by choice? Do you want to be, where do you want to be? There's so many of those discussions that happen on a daily basis. I think the ethics are there far more than they get publicized. Um, You know, certainly there are ethics branches of, of all of the major reproductive societies and, and people think about it and people talk about it and, and finding the sweet spot between at what point does a lawmaker say you can and cannot do this versus when a physician says, yeah, we can or cannot do this um, is a hard one to find. And I think there's a role for probably both of them, but what that exact role is, I think remains to be seen. Yeah, it's very important. I really appreciate listening to your insight and your perspective as a reproductive endocrinologist and also as just a very genuine caring doctor who we both aspire to be more like one day it's absolutely my pleasure and i'm glad that you guys are doing this because it's um these are the types of shows that are all kinds of fun to listen to because you're getting these snapshots into worlds that you otherwise would never never think about or never see i mean it's it's rare that i have med students rotate with me because i'm such a subspecialized 
in such a subspecialized field, but right. fun to think about all of it. Well, to our listeners, this has been Medical Matters and thank you for listening. Thank you so much for having me.